pray. Holy Father, be with us now through your Son and by your Spirit. Be with the preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we will once again be in our lessons in Christology and looking at, again, uh, the ascension of Christ, specifically how the ascension of Christ uh, relates to the kingship of Christ. And that is something that we looked at last time we were together, is um, essentially how Christ is king and the nature of Christ's kingship. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be a king? Uh, and now we have to look at the relationship between when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father uh, after his resurrection, or rather 40 days after his resurrection, and what that ascension, how that relates to his enthronement, his kingship, okay? Um, which there is a connection. Uh, it's much... Let's say this. There's a, there's a, there's a connection there, so much of a connection that... Uh, we'll probably be here for two hours if I was to teach it all. Maybe we'll do it in two parts, or maybe I can just get, or maybe I can just get the gist of everything um, this evening. But there was so much there, so much illusion in the Old Testament of of kings ascending, um, and that pointing to Christ's ascension. For Christ as a king, of course. Um, what we're going to do then is just look at uh, a couple ways um, that we see this relationship of the ascension of Christ and the kingship of Christ. Uh, and then we will look at, at the end, how the kingship of Christ relates to us, um, how it's extended to us. How then are we then kings here on earth? Uh, remember, if, we, if I argued the past couple of months concerning Christ's ascension and his threefold office, that Christ's office of prophet extends to us, Christ's office of priest extends to us, and Christ's office as a king extends to us. So how does it extend to us? We will try to look at at the end. What we see at Christ's ascension, uh, first and foremost, is at Christ's ascension, he's installed as a king. He's installed as the king. It's his installation of his kingship. One theologian said, If the resurrection is the main event of history and the climax of the Christian story, the ascension is the crowning of our king as he sits upon his throne in glory. And what this point basically argues is that at Christ's ascension, again, the Father installed Christ as king and Lord over all. Now, already there's a dilemma in what I just said. Notice I said, at Christ's ascension, the Father installs him as king and Lord over all. Do you get the dilemma there or no? The dilemma is this. If Christ is the eternal son, then how can he be installed as king and Lord over all? That doesn't make any sense. He should already be king and Lord over all. So what is it about the ascension that shifts Christ's kingship and his, um, his lordship overall. What is it about who is, um, who is the one, rather, that is uh, um, being installed as king and lord overall? Well, um, when we talk about Christ being installed as a king and lord overall, first and foremost, we don't mean that the eternal son 
Okay, when he became man, stopped being king and stopped being Lord over all. And then when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, then he took up his crown and began to be again Lord over all. That's not what I mean. And I hope you don't think that's what I mean. Because a lot of Christians that believe that sort of what's called kenosis of Christ, this emptying of Christ, where the eternal son must take off all of what it means to be God in order for him to be all of what it means to be human. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, the eternal son does not stop being king and he does not stop being Lord over all. So what do I mean? Paul gives us the answer in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And earlier before that, Paul is going to speak about the eternal son becoming man. So what we call this here is the exaltation of Christ. That because of our Lord's life of obedience, Christ is exalted. Now, I haven't answered the question yet of how is it that Christ is the eternal son yet is exalted because if he's the eternal son, or rather since he's the eternal son, he can't be more exalted. It doesn't make any sense. Well, when we speak of the exaltation of Christ, we're speaking of not Christ specifically as God, but specifically as the God-man. As the mediator. Because of our life's Lord of, uh, because of our Lord's life of obedience, uh, because of his life, death, and resurrection, all the things that he has done for us, Christ, the God man, is exalted. The God man. Now, when we speak about the exaltation of Christ, again, it doesn't mean that Christ achieved an exalted state that he lacked prior to him becoming man. For God is and always will be the most exalted one. But here's the answer here. With respect to his human nature, Christ is exalted. With respect to Christ's humanity, Christ as man, Christ is exalted. And this is actually very wonderful news for us. Because if Christ as man is exalted, then you as man, generally speaking, man you know, mankind, will be exalted. Your exaltation, or rather Christ's exaltation, is your exaltation. That's one of the practical implications of this. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, not in respect of his Godhead, for, he, for that cannot be exalted higher than it is. So, not Christ as God is exalted. As in his humiliation, humiliation being that when the eternal son took on flesh, the Godhead was not lower. So that in his exaltation, the Godhead is not higher. So here he is saying is, Christ as God cannot go higher. And Christ, when he becomes man as God, does not become lower. But Christ is exalted as mediator. His human nature is exalted. His human nature now participates and the status of his divinity. This rich truth, saints, concerning the person and work of Christ um, is a much debated issue. Highly debated issue when we come to the arena of Christology. And the debate is whether or not Jesus Christ could have merited anything 
for himself. Again, the debate is whether or not Christ could have merited, could have earned, could have been rewarded with anything for himself. Again, the, um, the, the reasoning behind those uh, in this debate are saying this. Well, since Jesus Christ is the eternal son, then what could he merit? What could, in other words, what could God receive that he doesn't already have? What is God lacking that he doesn't already have? So what is Christ? What can he receive that he doesn't already have? That's the dilemma, the debate there. Well, um, I believe that there are many things that Christ could have merited. There are many things that Christ could have earned. And there's many things that Jesus Christ couldn't have earned, couldn't have merited for himself. For example... Uh, Jesus Christ could not and did not merit for himself what's called the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love. Uh, Those are the theological virtues that God gives to you. You do not have faith, you do not have love, and you do not have hope for God when you're a sinner. God gives you those in order for you to believe in him. Christ does not have to be given the gift of faith, hope, and love as merit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit or any of the graces that follow from the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Christ has not earned these things. I would even argue that Christ has not uh, merit uh, the beatitude of soul, uh, something that we will receive uh, uh, when we enjoy God in that beatific vision. Christ, at the very moment of conception, was full of grace and truth. Hence, he cannot increase, nor can he merit these things. In other words, the things that we get spiritually, Christ does not receive them. But he has them because he's the God-man. So what can Christ merit? If Christ can't merit those other things, and for infused virtues, all those other things, what can he merit? Well, this is important here, and this is very, very glorious. Christ can merit for himself that that which he does not possess in his estate of humiliation, but comes to possess in his estate of exaltation. Again, Christ merits those things that he does not have in his estate of humiliation, but comes to possess in his estate of exaltation. As Christ was a wayfarer, or what's called, that's a classical word for calling a traveler, a traveler on this earth. He was a wayfarer, her traveler, with regards to his passable and mortal body. Again, Christ was a traveler with regards to his passable and immortal or mortal body. The eternal son, rather, when he became man, did he take on a body that was already glorified and immortal. No, he did not. There's a glorious condescension of Christ where he does not allow the glory of his person to seep over, come over into his body. But rather, he deprives his humanity from the glory of his divine personality. Jesus Christ, again, as a traveler, um, um, was, a, was a traveler with regards to his passable and mortal body. And he properly and fully merits a perfect and complete and immutable, glorious body with respect to his humanity. 
Again, Christ does not have uh, an immutable, perfect, and complete body, but He earns and merits those things uh, after, or rather, at His resurrection. What else can Christ merit for Himself? Christ can merit for Himself the glory of the body, the exaltation of His name, and ascension, and the adoration of the faithful. This is what the Scriptures teach. Uh, again, Philippians 2, verses 8-9 through 9, says, And being found in, in the appearance of His man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. Hebrews 2, 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So, this is a wonderful passage because Christ, because He's God, He takes on humanity so that He can do what? Die. For everyone. It's very beautiful, is it not? Luke chapter 24, verse 26, Christ says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? John 17, verse 4 through 5, I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here Christ is saying is, may I in my humanity receive that essential glory that I have in my divinity. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. This is an interesting text. For he did not subject, uh, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, about which we are speaking. But someone has testified somewhere, saying, "What is a man that you think of him, or a son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor." This is speaking of Christ, by the way. And you have put everything in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But but now we do not see. Uh, yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his sufferings, death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is a beautiful text because it's, it tells us that mankind, by nature, does not have dominion over angels. Because the nature of angels are closer to God rather than us. So mankind doesn't have dominion over angels. Yet Christ, on the account of the hypostatic union, that is, on the account of the eternal Son becoming man, and on the account of a perfect life of obedience, we see that Him who was made lower than the angels is now exalted above the angels. In fact, everything now is placed under His feet. We also see that our Lord's resurrection, that uh, his meriting, him, him receiving because of what he has done. I mean, merit, saints, is, 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 um, is something that God gives on the account of justice. Because you have done this, I will give you this. Because Christ lived the perfect life of obedience, uh, both actively and passively, life and death, he receives what? Well, one of the things he receives is a resurrection. 
Resurrection is a part of something that Christ merits for himself, that Christ merits for us. But we see he merits a glorious body at the resurrection of Christ. And this is very, very interesting and quite beautiful. At the resurrection, Christ's humanity, him as man, the things that he did not allow to to cross over into his, his humanity is now advanced beyond its natural bounds. Now you might say, how is Christ's humanity advanced beyond its natural bounds? Because dead men do not raise from the dead. But Christ, the God-man, his divinity is not raised from the dead. But as man, he's raised from the dead. Because, of course, God can't die. And in this, when Christ raises, rises from the dead, he comes to participate and partake of all the things uh, that he merits. Again, those things are a glorious body, uh, the, ins- the insulation of king, of being a king uh, with respect to his humanity, uh, being, uh, having all things subjected under him, uh, the adoration of the faithful, all these things, saints, Christ merits. And I hope what you see um, is not just the link between ascension and kingship, but also the great humility and the great condescension of Christ. Uh, this might, might not be something that we consider a lot of, but we ought to. Uh, just how low the eternal son went in order for us to be saved. And you might say, and not meaning low in the sense of, you know, he lived in a cardboard box and he, he didn't have any money. Not that type of low, but simply the fact that the eternal son, God himself, took on humanity. That's low. That's very, very low. In his incarnation, and we also see, as our confession talks about, that Christ assumes human defects. Now, I don't believe that Christ could have gotten sick. Uh, but one of the main human defects is death. And Jesus Christ assumes death. He wills his own death. I mean, there's much debate over this, but I'm on this side of the debate where it says, where they say, if Jesus Christ did not want to, if he did not will to, he wouldn't have died. Jesus Christ only died when it was time for him to die. This is spoken of frequently throughout the scriptures. I mean, this is also times when you, when you read the Bible and you hear that they're coming for him and then he just like disappears. Like if a building was to fall on Christ, I don't believe he would died because no one takes his life, but he lays it down. He had power over his own death. And because he has power over his own death, he wills his own death. I mean, he actually walks toward death. This insight from Daniel Featley, uh, one of the Westminster divines, says this. I love this quote. That Christ, in regard to of his hypostatic union, was freed from all obligation to the law. 
which otherwise had laid upon him if he were to have been a mere man. So the eternal son was freed on the account of apostatic union because his humanity is uh, uh, united to his divinity. He is freed from the law. He does not have to obey the law by nature like we do. We naturally have to obey the law, God's law. Christ did not, but he submits himself to that law. So that what? So that we can be free from the curse of the law. I mean, when we think, so I just hope you're seeing what Christ is doing, him becoming man, him dying for us, him obeying the law for us. Those are things he does not have to do. But he does them for us. And because he does so, he's elevated, exalted, and given a status. With respect to his humanity, of course. The second thing we see is as king, Jesus conquered his enemies. So we have to ask, what is Christ doing as a king now? Well, there's many things that he's doing, but I want to highlight just one, and that is he conquers enemies. He conquers our enemies. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in that day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to be you as a do. Notice, saints, that it speaks of the sitting of Christ. And I'm sure you already know this, but this this sitting language speaks of two realities. Uh, In the ancient world, the right hand uh, was the place of authority. So to sit at God's right hand means to share in power and possession, um, or rather position. I want to think, okay, because God, the Father is a spirit, there's an empty throne, no one's on, there's a throne out there, a, a chair, but no one's on it, and then Christ is sitting at the right hand. I don't think we're, we're supposed to think in, in those type of, uh, in that type of imagery, but, but rather what's being stated is that Jesus Christ, um, has been given a position of authority and power, but not with respect to his divinity. That's the thing here. Because this wouldn't make sense, right? Because he's already God. He already has authority and and power. He's already sitting at the right hand of the Father. But what the psalm is saying is the God-man, the mediator, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of the Father. The second truth that we see um, as associated with the world sit, of course, is the finished work of Christ. I mean, this is something that, uh, that's been preached many, many times, but the sitting at the right hand of the Father, the sitting at the right hand of God, not only means royal authority, but also royal rest. That's the work of redemption is complete, yet ongoing, <laughs> because he is bringing all of us home with him. The seating of Christ signifies that he's completed the work of redemption and notice that what's Christ doing as he sits? Well, he's not just, you know, in his chair, has the potato chips in his lap, watching football. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. But it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, glorious is it not. What this means, saints, is part of Christ's rule is defeating enemies. Part of Christ's rule is defeating enemies. We might think that Jesus' enemies... If you believe this, then I'm not going to shame you or, you know, bind your conscience or anything. But there are many Christians who believe that uh, uh, Christ's enemies will be defeated once he returns. That, that they're just, 
doing out, they're doing their thing in the world, um, and Christ is letting them do their thing. This verse speaks that now, presently, Christ is destroying his enemies. It's not something that's a future event, but it's something that's happening right now. That Christ is destroying his enemies. Christ is not reigning uh, in a future time, a thousand years, golden age, whatever. He's reigning now with the saints in heaven. And because, or in light of this, or attached to this reigning, he's also destroying. He's reigning and destroying his enemies. <clears throat> you might say, well, I don't see that necessarily. Saints, you are a testimony of enemies being destroyed. What's the greatest enemy? Sin. You're a testimony of that, right? We don't have to think of, you know, China or North Korea. If you, you don't think on that scale, it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual conquering, a spiritual defeating. That's what this is. <clears throat> And, of course, like I said, our main enemies have already been defeated, right? Our enemy of sin was defeated by our Lord's life and death. Our enemy of death was defeated at Christ's resurrection. And our enemy of Satan was defeated throughout the totality of Jesus' work. This truth is comforting, is it not? Because it tells us that the future uh, will not only be better than the past, but also will be better than the present. That, that history itself is moving Somewhere, And wh whatever you believe concerning um, the nature of the world when Christ returns, you have to agree with this. Christ will win. That the Lamb will receive victory. That's what you have to agree with, right? And this is what this teaches. Um, I love how the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, describes, describes the work of Christ the King. It says, by subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I mean, this is something that I pray. And, I, and I, if this is your first time hearing this, maybe you want to write this down. Lord, please continue to subdue me to you. Just conquer me. Just, just take over all of my faculties. Everything. Now, in closing, how does the kingship of Christ extend to us? How does the kingship of Christ extend to us? How are we kings? Well... Hamas Abraco says, they are kings, for they have a royal heart, are in a royal state, enjoy royal dignity, have royal goods, and exercise royal dominion. We can say that Christ's kingly office aims to create kingly people. Again, Christ's kingly office aims to create kingly people. If Christ is a king, and if we are in union with Christ, then the church is a royal family here on earth. You are more royalty than, you know, queens and, and kings of England, all that. Now, mind you, let me save that because we'll get there. The church is the kingdom of grace. We fulfill what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The church is to be that. This is why also, saints, we aren't to do the things 
that Pastor Antonio said this morning. (laughs) Because Israel was to teach the world what true religion looks like. By not, by sustaining from particular things on the Sabbath. Well, we now are to teach our neighbor, the world, what true religion, what true piety, what true devotion, who the true God is. By doing what? By sustaining from things uh, that the world engages in on this day. Um, the Bible speaks of our sharing of Christ's kingship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 through 6. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us, up, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ, the status that he has obtained, it says here that we obtain that status. We are seated with him. Revelation 1.6 says, and I'm going to preach this when you get to it. And he made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. I'm not going to preach it, but amen to that, right? That he has made us a kingdom, a, a royal family. The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, question, question 32. But why are you called a Christian? This is a beautiful answer. Because by faith, I am a member of Christ. And and so share in his anointing. And it says here also, And afterward, to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Martin Luther said, With respect to his kingship of Christ, or the kingship of Christ, Every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things so that by virtue of his spiritual power, he is the Lord of all things without exception. Zacharias or Sinus, the one who just wrote that Heidelberg Catechism, says, We are therefore kings because we are lords over all creatures in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you leave here, you call your friends and say, I have authority over you. You are under my rule and uh, you are a peasant and start acting like, you know, the queen of England. This type of kingship is not earthly. And this type of kingship is not involved in political authority. This kingship is spiritual. It's a spiritual kingship. We must distinguish between the kingship of Christ and the kingship of the church. There's a distinction there. Christ is the natural king. We are kings because we are united to Christ. We are not kings by nature. We are adopted sons and daughters who are made kings. (coughs) But we are not kings naturally like Christ is. Again, Martin Luther, the power of which we speak is spiritual. It speaks, it rules. And and I hope this is encouragement for many of you because it was for me when I found this. It rules in the midst of enemies. And is powerful in the midst of oppression. In other words, we must not confuse the church's spiritual reign and kingship with earthly riches and political power. You have something far greater than political power and earthly riches. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you to do what? To enable you to overcome sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Our reign is spiritual, and we only conquer in and through Christ. It is Christ that enables us to conquer. Again, your sinus says, 
The kingly office of the Christians is to oppose and overcome through faith, the devil, the world, and all his enemies. In other words, we conquer, and this is how we conquer. We conquer the way Christ conquered. We conquer through self-denial. The church does not overcome Satan by the sword, but saints, you know how you overcome Satan? By suffering and sanctification. That is how we conquer. That is how the church will conquer. And that is the, 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 the paradox, right, of Christ conquering. Christ conquers the most deadliest of our enemies. Not to him, but to us. Sin, the grave, and Satan. How does he conquer? By humility. By death. By subjecting himself to earthly people. This is how we are to conquer as well. And this is the kingship of Christ. And this kingship of Christ is extended to us. And we are to be now humble kings. Uh, we are to be those like Christ uh, who do not have a throne here on earth. But our throne is in heaven. Where Christ is currently uh, awaiting uh, all of his children's return. And we will reign and be with him forever. You know, saints, Christ's ascension is also our ascension uh, we will ascend the same way Christ ascend, body and soul. And that will be just a coronation of this giant royal family. <laughs> uh, meeting with the Lamb and being with Him and reigning with Him. Which eventually, and Pastor Antonio will touch on this, I'm sure. I will get him to touch on this. We will be reigning on earth. We will be reigning on earth physically with the Lamb forever. Let's pray.